Welcome to Rise Leaders Radio. This podcast focuses on exemplary leadership, the type of leadership that brings about positive, meaningful change in places that matter. We explore how these leaders make things happen and the lessons they learned along the way. I'm your host, Leanne Mallory. I am super excited to introduce you all to Jennifer Touche this morning. Jennifer will tell us a compelling story about how a group of neighbors and concerned citizens banded together to ensure access to nature in an urban area. I became curious about the history of 12 Hills Nature Center the moment I stepped foot on it. My breath was literally taken away by the entrance, and then as I walked the trails, and encountered obvious remnants of old buildings still buried there, I knew there had to be a good story. I had to dig to find out who led the effort and how to get in touch with her. And I didn't know what to expect when I asked Jennifer to be my first guest. I learned a lot about the effort it takes to initiate and organize a big idea, especially one that impacted so many different stakeholders in really substantial ways. Jennifer talks about shared vision, politics, power, and how a group of concerned citizens literally changed a landscape forever. This land gets enjoyed every single day by neighbors in the community. So I'd like to just start by saying thank you, Jennifer, for everything that you did And I'm so happy to have you on the show this morning. Thank you, Leanne. It's really an honor to be your first guest. And just to even hear you talk about 12 Fills the way you just did really just means a lot to me. It's just such a blessing to have this space, this place at the end of my street. So interestingly enough, I'm talking to you from Houston. So you don't even live in the neighborhood anymore. So uh, let's just start by hearing a little bit about you. So yes, you're right. I live in Houston now. I moved away from Dallas about 13 years ago, really right after 12 Hills started to get its legs and become a reality. I'm originally from Houston and had been living in Dallas for 10 years in Oak Cliff, not far from where you are living right now. And had my third child and decided to move back home and raise my kids here closer to my family. So I'm here in Houston now, and I am currently professionally working as a vice president of personal and family philanthropy at the Greater Houston Community Foundation and have really worked my entire career in nonprofits, community organizing, and now in philanthropy there's definitely some common themes. And so I'm here in Houston doing that now with my family, but still have a lot of ties in Dallas. Of course, all my children were born there blocks away from 12 Hills and my sisters-in-law live there and um, still consider it kind of a second home. Well, we're really glad for the 10 years that you were here. I don't think I realized it was only 10 years. And I think at least five and a half of those years or you were working on 12 Hills, so. I was, definitely. Yeah, that was a big part of my time in Dallas was 12 Hills. Yeah. So I want to start by just giving a general overview, kind of a timeline of 12 Hills. And then um, I want you to correct anything I have to say and then give me some more details. So 
12 Hills is on what was originally a 20-acre plot of land. And in the 1950s, a large apartment complex took over most of the 20 acres. It was a thriving and really nice set of apartments. There were several pools and there was a nearby creek where kids played and learned to explore. But by the 1970s, the apartments fell into disrepair. There were fires, crime, drug dealing was common. And eventually the landowner defaulted on the loan and the city of Dallas took possession of the land. In 1992, the apartments were completely torn down. And for several years, it was just sort of a wild place. But it was a place where kids, again, were out exploring. It was just a big open space. And in some of the flatter areas, you would find people throwing frisbees, playing soccer, maybe putting down a picnic blanket, catching butterflies, all the things that people do when there's a nice piece of land in the middle of the urban area. Because it was so beautiful, it attracted a lot of attention from developers. And there was a lot of talk about actually putting a gated high-end community in that space. And many of the local residents weren't happy about that. They thought it would be divisive and it would take away the area where their kids were playing. So in 1999, there was a community meeting that was held in the local elementary school cafeteria. You were there and that's where your story begins. Did I get all of that right? Yes, you did. Um, I was not there for all of that history, but that's my understanding of what had happened there on the property. The only thing I would add to the story is just the name 12 Hills, to be descriptive of it, is it has these beautiful hills. And it's a really sort of special ecosystem as well that really came to life when it was vacant for all those years. Yeah, thank you. This is a part of Dallas where it's maybe the only part of Dallas where we actually have a very interesting topography, lots of hills and cliffs and everything. Uh, That's the name Oak Cliff. But this piece of land is indicative of that topography. So you were at this meeting and that's where your story begins or your involvement. And I'm wondering what happened there and What was compelling for you? Because my recollection or my story is that this meeting kind of launched your involvement in basically saving this piece of land. It did. Yes. So it was a big community meeting and I had just taken the last month off of my pregnancy. I was a community organizer at the time in Fort Worth. So of course, I'm going to go to all the community meetings in my own community And um, our city council person had called a community meeting. My recollection is there were at least 100 or more people that showed up. And it appeared at that meeting that she was appointing a committee of people to figure out, (laughs) I'm putting air quotes, you can't see that on the radio, to figure out what we were going to do with this very beautiful and valuable piece of property. And the committee had already been appointed and it was definitely seen by the group that was there at the meeting, at least the group that I was paying attention to as kind of stacked with people who 
definitely already had decided it needed to be developed and with high-end housing that would bring a lot of economic benefit to the community. And so that sense of this has already been decided for us was really palpable to me at that meeting. And I'm really grateful that people were saying things, but in particular, B.B. Gomez, who was maybe even still, she and her husband, Felipe, are members of St. Cecilia Catholic Church, which borders the property and lead the Girl Scout troops and the Boy Scouts and had actually been using the land for different things. She raised her hands and really said, what about our kids? You know, if you wall this off and take all of this and what about our kids? What about something for the community, something that benefits all of us that are here? And at the time, there were even more apartments bordering 12 Hills. So of course, everybody living in those apartments, they don't have yards, they don't have an easy place to go outside. And that's how that property was being used. And and there were a couple other sentiments like that that were expressed during the meeting. But in particular, Bibi spoke so passionately and it was clear that she had a bigger vision for who should benefit from really this this jewel that was in our community. So afterwards, I connected with her and related to what she had to say. And I had some experience as a community organizer personally and asked her if she wanted to work together to try and bring the community voice to what's really going to happen. And she wanted to. And and then I was there with another friend of mine, Beth Loveridge, who also felt that way. And she's really into the environment and knew all that was happening there ecologically and with the animals and the birds and the creek. So she had that interest in mind. And there were a number of other people who sort of gathered after that meeting to start talking about a broader vision that included our voices as members of the community. Yeah. So this is wonderful. I didn't have all of that detail before about how you all just, it sounds really organic that the conversations got started. And I'm wondering in those early days, what was the vision? What was the compelling vision that kind of held you all together that inspired you to continue to take these steps and move forward with your own plan, with your own vision? Well, it's interesting because in the beginning, the vision was something for the community and truly nothing more than that. That's what held us together. We wanted to bring the community together. And so we actually spent a lot of time, we meaning, I don't know, there were maybe eight or 10 of us in the very beginning, spent a lot of time convening the community and listening to see what that vision would be. We knew that there was something there. We knew that it was a valuable piece of property and didn't want to just hand it over to be developed and have, you know, whatever, the 20 people who got to live there have it. And so the vision was the community voice. And through lots of meetings and conversations and talking to people and petitions, and I mean, I can't go into all of the details of how we got that vision. I mean, we had meetings at St. Cecilia Catholic Church. We had meetings at Rosemont. We had meetings in people's homes. We went to neighborhood association meetings. And we may get to this later, but we also invited our 
representative for the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, his urban biologist, to come and say, what could the vision be here from that perspective, from the urban biologist perspective? So the vision came together, but the driving vision was something for the community that we could benefit from, that the kids could experience, that we could steward, that protected some of the nature that was there and the wildlife. And it became clear that there was a lot that the community could do to take care of this piece of property, to continue to restore it to a natural state, that there were benefits for the environment, benefits for the community, benefits for the teachers and educators who were right around there. So what I would say is that what held us together was a community voice. So it emerged naturally. One of the things in our prior conversation that you just brought up again here was the amount of listening that you did. I'd like for you to talk a little bit about that because what I'm hearing here too is that you didn't have a particular agenda that you were pushing, except that it was something for the community and that you let the community kind of form what that would be. So say something about the listening aspect of how this came together. One of my core beliefs is that local communities that are closest to problems are also closest to solutions. And in Oak Cliff in particular, and maybe I think all over, but definitely I knew in Oak Cliff, there's a lot of ownership of that community. There's people who have lived there for a long time. People feel connected to it. There is a sense of community there. And so I firmly believe that the community can come up with what's best for itself. I kind of believe that in general, that the communities that live and work and play where they are, that are closest to things, know also how to make it better. And so that was my approach. And I definitely that's what I brought to our group and like attracts like, I guess, because the other people that were attracted to working with each other were all about listening and really believing that at the end of the day, the community would come up with the best solution. And I believe it did. Another thing that stood out to me from our first conversation was the amount of diversity that you all had in these meetings. Yes. Oak Cliff is a diverse community and that was something that everybody was really pretty committed to that was working with the 12 Hills group. In particular, having BB and Felipe as community leaders through St. Cecilia, which is a, a really big community institution. There are community institutions that people trust and go to. And a lot of times they're really segregated from each other. Like certain group, you know, people go to Catholic church at this St. Cecilia and that's one demographic and everybody else goes to the Kessler Park United Methodist and that's another demographic. But those institutions are there and we were really intentional about finding leaders within those institutions that were trusted by the diverse communities that live in Oak Cliff to come together and making sure that we weren't leaving anyone out. And we had meetings in Spanish, if that is what we needed to do. And we're just intentional about um, reaching out to different groups and making our approach accessible to people. So 
There's certain kinds of meetings where people feel safe going to because they're used to going to those kinds of meetings. There's other places where you can meet and hold meetings where people feel comfortable going there. You can knock on doors. So we were intentional about how we were gathering those voices and listening to make sure that to the extent that we could, we were digging into the cracks and crevices of where people were. Yeah, so lots of different stakeholders here, and it sounds like that you engaged all of them. And I'm going to jump forward to at least part of the solution because, you know, spoiler alert, obviously something happened because we have this beautiful space at the end of my street here. But there was 20 acres, and you all had to work with the city, developers. There was a lot of other stakeholders in the mix as well, other than just the community. What approach did you take? And I think it was about five and a half years, Jennifer, that it took for this from the first community meeting to what we have here. I think so. I have it in my mind that it was four, but maybe it was five and a half. Maybe it's because I left after four years, so it was still happening. But yes, there's always stakeholders beyond just who you're talking to. And one of the things I learned as a community organizer was always to do a power analysis. And I don't think we talked about this before. That's really just a fancy way of saying, who are all the stakeholders? Who can make decisions? Who cares about what happens to this property? Who's going to make money off of it or not? Who has something to win or lose about the outcome of this? And take a step back to really figure out who are all the stakeholders, who has the power, who may lose power, and look at all of that. And so it was very clear that because this was a property that was on the tax rolls, actually county and city, because there were back taxes owed, that there was the county, there was the city. Of course, we had elections in the middle of this for city council people who you know, they're looking at their neighborhood and what they're going to do or not do for the neighborhood if they want to get elected to city council. We had, of course, developers, neighborhood developers, but still developers, potentially outside developers. You have the school district. And then, of course, you have all the neighbors that live around there. So that was a big part of how we figured out what we needed to do, not being myopic and what we wanted, but being (laughs) really understanding the way things work. If you want to get a sidewalk in your neighborhood, if you want to get anything done, you have to look at all the different factors that will affect your ability as a person or as a group to get that done. And the last thing I wanted to do was go in blind. People get clobbered (laughs) because If you don't look at the power structure, you know, if you've got money and power, you're going to win. And so the only way to counterbalance that is to have a lot of people and to understand how things work and understand that you really have to go in with your eyes wide open and not be naive about people maybe pushing back. People have pushed back on grassroots communities in all of history especially when there's money involved. And that's just the reality. Yeah. And when we spoke, you talked about how you see all of those different stakeholders. Talk a little bit about 
the no permanent enemies, no permanent allies. Yes. So that is politics in the positive way. We're so entrenched now in our country. So it's hard for me to talk about it outside of 10 years ago or whatever the context was longer than that. So something that we ascribe to as a group and that I ascribe to personally was the idea of negotiating. Just because someone was against your project at one point, but now they're for it or originally, because as you said earlier in the podcast, originally we did ultimately have a fully developed professional rendering for a 20 acre urban nature center. I mean, one of our neighbors, Bill, the landscape designer, we had a fully rendered professional rendering for all 20 acres, which the community got behind. And once we got all the feedback, we kind of knew what we wanted to do. We had drawings of it and were going forth with that plan. And it became clear that the school district was now very interested in the property and that there were people in the neighborhood and city council or mayor that really were going to push for some housing on the property. And so we did have to go back and change our plan and negotiate with our city government, the school district, developers to come up with a different vision. And I mean, 12 Hills today is just over five acres. And if we had been unwilling to walk away from that original, we didn't give up too quickly, but there were some people that felt like we gave up too much. But at that point, it felt like it was going to be, if we fought for all, we were going to get nothing. And we wanted something. And we knew if we didn't consider anyone a permanent enemy or a permanent ally, that we could still be at the table and not dig our heels in around our vision or around who we're going to talk to or who we're not going to talk to in this situation. You said earlier that win doesn't mean winner take all. I find that inspiring and very insightful that, you know, not to get too dug in and that we can still win even if we didn't get the original vision. In some ways, I feel like we were so dug into getting something that we were not going to lose. So there was a level of persistence and tenacity and just we were going to keep fighting, fighting, fighting that core group. And it was a fight every single minute. I mean, there were threats, not for our lives, but you better stop coming to these meetings and you all don't understand what's best for the community and you know, no one's ever going to want to come and develop down here and all the things that you hear. But there was that core group that was sort of like a terrier, like, we're going to get something. I mean, we're going to get something. And so we did have to hold on to that part. And I think that is what drove us to not just throw our hands up and say, all right, we lost. So we felt happy. Maybe some people felt like we got a crumb. But based on the way you described your experience of it. And I've been back there and I see all that is happening there now and how much the community owns it and loves it. I don't think we got a crumb. I don't think so either. 
it felt like a crumb a little bit, but we didn't care. We were getting something. You know, that period of time, four years, five and a half years, whatever it is, that's a long time, it seems, to keep people fully engaged in the way that they needed to be in order to bring this to fruition. What's the secret sauce of keeping people engaged? Well, I think our connections to each other, we really liked each other. None of us knew each other before. This was not a group of friends doing this for self-interest or for our own kids or something like that. So there was like friends in that old, like sort of Greek way, <laughs> like there's that Greek word agape, I think. I'm not sure that there, there was that connection with each other. We felt committed to each other and committed to the community and responsible for making something happen. That's part of it. And then I was someone and, and maybe a few others. I don't know if I was the only one. You'd have to ask them. I just knew we could get something. I knew if we kept fighting, we could make something happen. I just believed in that. And so I think for a lot of people involved, it was their first time getting involved in a community initiative, in kind of a political initiative, and this type of engagement with the city and the county and all that was involved. And so I think it was a little scary for a lot of people who definitely did not think we were going to win or get anything in the end. But there were a number of us that just knew if we kept, we, we could wear them down. Yeah. And that voice of hope, you know, just having hope all the time. And I wonder, you know, if this were happening today, what it would be like. I often wonder, things can happen so quickly now, technically, that I sometimes wonder if we're losing our ability to be patient. And this didn't happen overnight. You all had to have patience and keep fighting, keep the vision in front of you. And I think it helped a lot that you had the background in knowing that. And so it feels important to have someone on the team that knows, that can see into the future and can even tell people, this is going to be a long fight. There's going to be some ups and downs. We may not get everything that we want, but we're going to get something. It feels important to have that voice there. It is. It really is. And, you know, this was pretty early on in my career personally, but I had been a community organizer for just over five years before I started 12 Hills. And one of the first fights I was in as a community organizer, I was not living in that community or a stakeholder. I was being paid to help develop the leadership in that community. We were fighting for funding from the city of Dallas for after school programs to extend the learning and, you know, for all kinds of things. And it was really within the first six months. And I wasn't even a stakeholder. It was not my kids who were falling behind in school and had nowhere to go and no recreation center and no library and all of that. And we lost. <laughs> and it was like a five or six hour school board meeting. And it was a swing vote. And the person we thought we had on our side voted against us really late at night. And everybody was there with their little kids and 
just went home devastated everybody. And my boss, who was a Catholic nun, and I'm Jewish, <laughs> she had been around the block. She had been, you know, she she had been organizing farm workers in the 60s and 70s. You know, she told us organizers, she had that, you know, she had been around the block and knew that you had, she said, you think you're upset because you lost your first fight as a community organizer. It's not even your kids. Don't go home and cry. Come in earlier tomorrow and get your boxing gloves on. This is a long battle. And the people you're working with have been knocked down many, many times. But we can win fights. So come back. And then after five years of organizing, I saw the small wins, things like getting a sidewalk or finally getting the city to put a little library in the neighborhood, small wins. And I was able to experience those along with some really horrifying losses. Whether she was actually a mentor or not, she really stands out in your memory as someone who set a context for you and was inspiring in a dose of reality. Like, yeah, we don't give up after one try. If this is important, you'll come back. There's also this sense of for the sake of what am, am I fighting for this? And, and you don't want to lose sight of that either. As long as you don't lose sight of what the bigger picture is, the little wins count. They're huge. The little wins are really, really important because it gives you a sense of power that you're not a victim. You can come together and fight for something. 12 Hills is big in my mind. Before that, I was working in communities where just getting a sidewalk in front of the school so your kids didn't show up to school covered in mud was a huge win and a sense of power um, for that community and really can transform people's willingness to continue to improve their communities, improve themselves, and have a voice. So let's jump forward in time now. What we have today is, like you said, a little over five acres. That's 12 Hills Nature Center. We also have a five-acre gated community, beautiful homes with a very natural landscaping. And interestingly enough, there's actually a gate that goes from 12 Hills into that neighborhood and I go through that gate regularly when I'm on my walks. I will go through 12 Hills, go through the gate, and then out into, you know, the larger Oak Cliff neighborhoods through the golf course and everything like that. I want to interrupt you on that to tell you we fought for that gate. <laughs> okay. That gate was a big conversation. Do not cut off the neighborhood. We need a gate. We need a walkway. We need an easement. This has to be connected. We had to fight for that. Well, and it is, and it seems to be working. You know, it's a beautiful neighborhood to walk through. So even though it's a gated community, like to drive your car through, there's a gate there, but you can go through the gate, walk through the community, and they have a smaller gate, just a people gate, that you can get onto the main street. Well, you know, that just warms my heart because it seemed like such a small thing but as you can hear, everything was so intentional. And so we gave up the five acres to a gated community. But how 
how can we still connect it to the community? How can we send the message that this is still part of the community, that the people who live there are part of the community, that the community isn't going to get cut off? And I'm so glad to hear that that's working. Yeah, it's working. And then on the other 10 acres, the local school, Rosemont Elementary, built a a lower campus. So the upper campus is the original school right around the corner from me. And then Rosemont has its lower campus that also has some fields and a soccer field that are all part of DISD, Dallas Independent School District. That also, I think, has a gate, although I don't know how often they use that. But it's also so much fun for me. I'll go through the nature center during the middle of the day to take a break and the kids are just out there roaring and playing. And so it's really a nice thing there too, for me to walk out my door and hear the kids playing. So ultimately that's what we ended up with and a beautiful, beautiful opening to this space. And there was fundraising that had to happen once it was decided, I guess, that the land would be parsed out this way. You had to raise money to actually purchase the land because it wasn't given, just given. So you raise money to purchase the land and to build this, what I say is a magical entrance to the space. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So the property went up for auction, nail biting experience for us (laughs) and the developer purchased all 10 acres, the school district had already sealed their deal for their 10 acres. We had made a deal with the developer that we thought was going to win the auction. We did some work on the back end to get it zoned in our favor on the five acres. And so we had to purchase five acres from him at a, a lower than market rate value, but we did have to purchase that. And we had embarked on another community effort to, we knew we weren't going to build any buildings on the property, like a recreation center or anything like that, but we wanted an entrance and we wanted a space to tell the story, to welcome people, to make it feel permanent. (laughs) And so we did invite people in the community to help design a front entrance and another neighborhood leader and mom, Carolyn Perna, won that design. And we got a lot of input and feedback about what needed to be in the front entrance and had beautiful renderings, which we needed to go fundraise for it. So we got all of our ducks in a row and went out into the community to raise the dollars for that front entrance and also to purchase the property. And so that was a little bit of I'll say I was I was trying to remember kind of how it all got started. But one thing that was really helpful is there was one of our neighbors who who was involved with us. His family had a private family foundation and they made a lead gift. I don't even remember the amount. Someone else would or I could pull up a spreadsheet, but they made a lead gift. We knew we were going to need outside funding beyond just the neighborhood. And we knew we could raise some money in the neighborhood, but not all of it. It was quite a bit. So in order for us to get outside funding, and we had already formed as a 501c3, we had 
actually Cindy Spence, who lives in the neighborhood. She paid the $500 IRS fee for us to become a nonprofit. That was one of the ways that she contributed. But at this point, you know, we were going to have to raise a lot more money. So we got a seed gift from that family foundation. And then um, some of our neighbors started an annual fundraiser, which I think is still going on. Mm-hmm. It is. To raise some community dollars. And then we just started knocking on doors, talking to local businesses, talking to people. We had, I don't know if you've ever seen the painting of our founder's tree. I believe so. I think it's on the some note cards that go out. Yeah. So we had a local artist, Millie Behar, who has since moved. She is a painter, and she made a beautiful painting of what we call our founder's tree during sunset. And we had an auction and then also recreated that on these canvases and sold them. So we did a lot of sort of grassroots fundraising and then also started writing for grants. And we had a couple of people, myself and Karen Cameron and others who had some experience with just basic grant writing and fundraising, um, which was fortunate. Um, And we just started talking to funders. We brought our passion. We brought our plans. We brought really good writing. That's one of the skills, you know, I have two degrees in history, which like, okay, what are you going to do with that? One of them is an oral history. So you can see how that helped (laughs) because I have an oral history degree. And the other one is, you know, you have to do a lot of writing. (laughs) And so good writing helps when you're applying for grants. So we just started knocking on doors and we're fortunate that we got some lead gifts. And then once people see other people are funding it, and it truly is a beautiful entrance and a beautiful community asset. And it was clear that this was a really great project to fund. So we just stayed with it to raise the money. We did not raise all the money we wanted to raise for some other projects, which have happened a little bit over the years. Just again, that not taking a winner take all kind of thing. We, you know, had to scale back some things. We had to prioritize what we wanted to raise money for. There were lots of conversations about, do we need a staff person or not? And what do we really need the money for? But we felt really committed to getting that front entrance funded. Yeah, so in wrapping up here, part of that front entrance, which also just blew me away when I first walked in. So I encourage anyone who's listening here and who hasn't already been to 12 Hills to look online and just see some of the photos. But it's a really nice, like a hallway, like you walk through this entrance and then right at the end of the entrance, there's a big stone with an inscription that you and another local resident wrote. How do you all talk about this? An invitation, an invocation? Is there a way that you talk about this writing on the rock? I think both of those words are probably how Miss Paula and I talked about it is an invitation and an invocation. You know, it's a poem that we wrote together. We felt like we wanted to invite people to experience 12 Hills if they sat for a minute to read this the way that we did something we didn't talk about earlier, but you'll hear in what we wrote is 
and this is kind of really getting out there, we felt like the land was talking to us. Really, it wasn't just the community. It felt like a sacred space. It felt connected to the actual land as well, and especially strongly for several people involved in the effort. It doesn't feel out there at all. I experienced that when I walked through. And again, the way that the entrance was created, you really feel like you're entering something special. So go ahead and if you would, in closing, read the poem that you and Paula Craig wrote together. This piece of land called out to the neighbors, save me, restore me, and sit with me in wonder. And we did, together. These arms of rock will welcome you to come inside and conspire with nature to heal yourself and the world around you. Walk and learn, observe and feel, listen, listen closely. This sacred place has a strong, clear voice. Nature speaks to each of us, nurtures us and teaches. We are privileged to be the steward. If you like what you heard today and the direction this podcast is pointed, subscribe to Rise Leaders Radio on iTunes, leave us a comment and a five-star rating. You can also check out the Rise Leaders website at www.rise-leaders.com to find the resources I pull from in my coaching and consulting work and that I find central to transformative leadership. If you're committed to leading with a clear vision and from core values and taking your team to the next level, then get in touch. You can reach me, Leanne Mallory, from my website. I'd be honored to hear from you. I appreciate you tuning in today and especially for being the type of person interested in learning more about how you can elevate your part of the world. Take good care. I'm heading to 12 Hills again to visit with Jennifer and her preschool class. They should be eating lunch now. I hope you're also hearing the church bells in the background. It's right up straight 12 o'clock or straight noon o'clock, whatever that is. Oh, I see them heading back to the bus now. So we may have to wait just a little bit. But again, I'm 12 Hills Nature Center is right at the end of my street. I love when I drive around the corner and I see the Seed preschool bus named Matilda parked out in the parking lot. We're going to go hear a little bit from Jennifer about the premise, the goal of Seed Preschool and um, hear the sights and sounds of being inside Matilda. All right, I'm walking into Matilda. I'm going to stop here for a moment and take my shoes off because I'm supposed to leave my worries and my shoes at the door here. What kind of chickens are these? Pluma and Bebe. Oh my goodness, you really know your chickens. What are they eating? Uh, grass. So do they stay in here most of the time? They come home with me and live with the rest of the flock in the backyard. We raise them from babies 
last year, uh -huh. and they've been always in the bus, so that's I, what they know. I saw them uh, growing up on Instagram. On Instagram you what is your, uh, is it Seed Preschool? Seed Preschool. Yeah, so if anybody wants to follow on Instagram, can they can do that. All yeah. the adventures of Babette and Plumette. <laughs> okay. Can you take just a few minutes and tell us a little bit about Seed Preschool and Matilda? Sure. and then you met. Well, Seed Preschool sort of grew out of the, the desire to have a bit more happening at 12 Hills Nature Center for families and children. And we, we led and continue to lead a monthly parent and child preschool walk through the Nature Center and the Texas Master Naturalist Program. And some of those children were the first to join Seed Preschool, which meets twice a week on a more regular basis. And it's been a good friendship between the school and the Nature Center, and we do a lot to support each other. How did you get the idea for Matilda? I have not seen anything quite like this before. Well, Matilda was an answer to the need for some sort of shelter that does not exist at 12 Hills. There are no buildings mm -hmm. and to construct a building or to rent commercial real estate elsewhere was quite costly. And Matilda was bought and paid for and doing quite nicely with a little nice. overhead. Yeah, and you have a background in preschool education. You've, you had already done this I do. before. Uh, yes, okay. I studied early childhood education and previously was director of a full-time brick-and-mortar mm -hmm. school for several years. The need for nature in the lives of children is being recognized and more and more programs are doing that. And people are having programs and gatherings about alternative living and tiny homes and mobile businesses and nature programs and all sorts of things that, uh -huh. that this sort of fits in the middle of. And so how long have you been doing this? We have been here for two years. Okay. What age group kids are the these? The ages are approximately age three to age six or seven and we allow older children who are in homeschooling programs are also welcome to, to join us. Uh -huh. and we really like the mixed age group because it's they get a lot of help from one another, mentorship, and the older children can set examples for the younger children. The younger children can look up to them for help. Is there, do you have, do you use some Montessori principles here? I know that that. Some elements mm -hmm. of Montessori and Waldorf education, Reggio Emilia, different, different programs yeah. without specifically strictly following one philosophy yeah but i allow the wisdom of those different philosophies to 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 shape what we do uh-huh and looking for what works best for each child and so you run this program year-round yes except for august okay when it's just Too hot. a little bit beastly hot. yeah yeah but we are looking for some alternative things to do this coming august so okay so Facebook and Instagram will let everyone know what we're up to. Okay. Looking for some temporary indoor space to do some little so you can workshops and classes going. in August. Do you have solar panels on the roof? Yes. You do? Okay. Yes. I knew that there, you were. Okay. There are solar panels on the roof, and that was a, a wonderful gift of a donation from the North Texas Master Naturalist 
chapter, okay. as well as the company Soul Arc Solar that manufactured the panels gave us a tremendous discount, and we were able to install solar panels. Well, Helps us save a little bit on the well, and it energy the and kids. keeps the air conditioning going. Uh, well, I'm going to let you guys get to lunch, but in, in closing, how do people get in touch with you if they, do you, do you have openings? Do you, how, how do you run we the program? We do have openings. So. There are drop-in openings for this summer because many of our regular students are off on vacations and doing other things, so we have some drop-in openings for the summer and we have full-time openings starting in the fall. You can find our website, seedpreschool.org, or Facebook and Instagram okay. are both a place to look. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. It always makes me so happy when I come down here and I see Matilda Park. Thank you so much for visiting us. Oh, you're welcome. All right.